as I was thinking through the message, there's a couple of things I was reading this week. One just really challenged me, um, even though I've known this for a long time and, and even personally have struggled over this whole idea uh, over the years. But it was just an article challenging us on this whole idea of Sunday morning has become kind of an entertainment time. You know, and that's, that's not a blight on churches that spend a lot of time, money, and effort in making things look real good. I'm saying that as we have the big, nice new screen this morning. Um, but, you know, but the issue is not a matter of whether we have a screen, whether we have a worship band, whether we listen to CDs, whether we have a choir and we open up a hymn book. You know, the issue is not are we entertained when we leave on Sunday morning. The issue is have we met with the Lord. I grew up cutting my teeth on the hymns. I mean, I can almost tell you if you name a Baptist hymn, I can tell you what page it's on, and I can sing at least the first, second, and fourth verses. I don't know. The third I might be a little iffy on, but I can at least get the first, second, and fourth, because that's the ones we normally sing. And the fourth verse, you always had to change your, your key or whatever, right? I didn't know what you do on the last verse. Um, and so, but not that I could ever sing any of it in the right key, but th- that was the whole idea. And so, it became almost, in some ways, easy to just kind of fake it. And so as we're here together this morning, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be the body, as we finish up 1 Peter, think through who Peter was. Peter was one of these guys who really didn't think he needed anybody else. And when he was hanging out with Christ, he pretty much had all the answers. He thought he did anyway. He didn't really need the other guys. He kind of did his own thing. And yet God got a hold of him. And because of his failures, because of his understanding, realizing he wasn't all he thought he was, he realized that he needed other people. And so we've been looking at First Peter. We talked about that, the fact that he's writing to refugees, really. He's writing to those people who are dispersed throughout. They've been persecuted. They've had to leave their hometowns because of their faith. They're, they're running around, and all these different things that are going on. We see refugees today here in the United States, some leaving because of religious persecution, some because of political persecution. The issue is they're being displaced from their home. We've got two young men that played at our bank banquet back in the fall that parents, they were in Aleppo, Syria, with their parents. They got a call And he said, I had to pack whatever I could put in one bag and grab my guitar and had to leave home right then. And within the next 24 hours, their whole town pretty much was wiped out. He lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin now, but his parents are still in Syria. They had to leave. They had to run away. And so these people that Peter's writing to are the same idea. They've had to to evacuate. They've had to run away from their homes. And he's writing all these ideas to them that we read and we go, isn't that nice? And isn't that good that I can take this and learn from it? Because what what we've done so far, and and it's okay to do that, is we've looked at these passages so far and we, we leave with the idea of how can it change me? 
But what we're going to see here is Peter, towards the end, pulls it all together to say it's not just about how does it change me, it's how does it change us. How does it impact us? He talks about there in the the first chapter that he he reminded us of everything that God has done for us. He's, He's died for our sins. He's given us that imperishable gift. And because of that, we have joy. Now, I'm not sure that we understand that concept because I don't always see a lot of joy. You know, and I know I come down hard on Facebook, but, you know, Facebook's not a place to find a lot of joy. It's to find every complaint and misery that's ever come about, and let's put it out there. But the issue is, if we have a relationship with Christ, and if we understand what He's done for us, we should have joy. Doesn't mean we always walk around with a smile on our face. Doesn't mean that our lives are all perfect and easy and great, but we trust the Lord in the midst of it. It, we, we, care, we understand that, you know, you look at Joseph, the lights of Joseph, and he's, for 13 years, he's been tossed around. His brothers have rejected him, sold him into slavery. He's been, he finally kind of works his way up the ladder. Then he gets in trouble and he has to go to jail. And then he, he, in jail, he finally meets two guys and he thinks, hey, I'm going to get out. And the one guy that gets out forgets totally about him. And he spends a couple more years in jail. And finally, he's, he's brought out and then his brothers come and ask for stuff from him. And he's thinking, hmm, that's a good opportunity. I mean, that's what I'd be thinking. You want something from me? You sold me into slavery. But what does he say? He said, everything that you did to me that you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So that I could be in this place right now to rescue everyone. And so we understand, though, that not everything in life is easy and great and fun, but we have joy. He challenged us to holiness to living a life that brings honor and glory to the Lord that is different than the world. And it's not always obvious to people because we don't always live differently. But we're called to be different. We're called to be holy. He challenged us to ethical behavior as far as dealing with authorities and dealing with our work and our families and and living in a way that, that honors Him. As a matter of fact, it was Billy Graham many years ago said, The true test of a Christian is the way he lives at home. Because it's easy to come to church on Sunday morning and put on a smile and be something you think I I am. But the people who live with me on a daily basis, and most of them are here today, um, so here I am throwing myself to the wolves, um, know whether it's real in your life or not. And so he says to live that way. And then he talked about that fun thing of Suffering. What are we going to do when we suffer? I showed a video, uh, I think, to Gil a few minutes ago. One of our friends had opportunity yesterday. He went to a Muslim gathering as a Christian. He brought some boxes of stuff to kind of give away. And they said, well, why are you here? And he said, well, I'm here to, to talk to people about Jesus. And they said, here. And they handed him a microphone, gave him opportunity to share the gospel with this whole group of Muslims videoed it and are putting it on nationwide television. See, isn't that great? That's great, but it also has the possibility that go to jail this week. Because what he's doing is illegal. And now they videoed it and put it on the news. But I can guarantee you if he goes to jail this week, he's still going to rejoice. Because he had an opportunity to talk to these people about the Lord. 
He's suffering. And, and so the idea, so I have a question for you. Now, a lot of times I put questions up here that are rhetorical, but this is one I want you to actually answer. All right? Put this question up there for me. Is church truly a community? And if you answer, you can't just say yes or no. You have to give a reason. Now, now that means nobody's going to answer. Just church. Your experience with church, is it a community? Should be. Why? I told you you got to answer. <laughs> what Christ called us to do is what we do on Sunday mornings community. Can be. You know, I just want us to think about it because as he's coming to the end here, it seems like kind of out of the blue, he's gone from all these things where he sounds like he's talking to individuals to now all of a sudden he's talking to the church. But it's not out of the blue because all throughout this, this idea is everything he's talking about relates to the body of Christ, not just to individuals. As a matter of fact, when we read all of Scripture, we need to read it in that light, that it relates to the body of Christ. Not just how it can change me, but how it can change me so that I can impact others. So that we can, as a group, impact the world with the gospel. And so now we're here in First Peter Chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says this, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, a unique passage here for Peter. Because Peter is challenging the elders at this church, of these dispersed people, to shepherd the flock. But he's challenging them based on his own failing. If you read the passage, you're going to go back and realize he's remembering back to his own time of blowing it. You ever disappointed somebody you really cared about and it just broke your heart that you disappointed them? You can raise your hand. I guess I'm the only one. Okay. I remember when I was a kid. Now, this is kind of crazy to think that I was 12 years old and but I was hanging out with some guys who decided it was a good idea at that point in time to smoke cigarettes. You know, one was 16, one was 14, whatever, and we're hanging out together. And one morning, my dad, right before school, right before he left for work, said, I need to talk to you for a minute. So we go sit on the front porch of the house, and he goes, I saw you over there smoking that cigarette. Now, you got to know my dad. My dad smoked a pipe. Ever since I'd known him, been known to smoke cigarettes in the past. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay. And he said, you know, I can't tell you not to do it. But I want you to know that it's really disappointed me. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I would have wished my dad had taken me in the house and taken his belt off and beat the daylights out of me. Because then I could at least be mad at him. But I disappointed him. And think of Peter in Luke chapter 20. You know, we always see the movies where Peter is, he denies Christ and he kind of goes off and he prays and he comes back and all of a sudden he's there at the crucifixion and it seems almost disjointed. But in Luke chapter 20, there's a phrase there that we need to understand. is that after the third time that Peter said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I called down curses upon himself. I don't know him. It says Jesus looked at Peter. And the cock crowed three times and Peter realized what he had done. Think about that. Christ is on trial for something he hasn't done. You're one of his best friends and you've rejected him. And he makes eye contact with you. How am I disappointing? And he says here in in chapter 5, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that came from that. Because Luke chapter 20 is not the end. In John chapter 21, Jesus pulls Peter aside. He says, Peter... Do you love me more than these? Now, I always thought that meant, do you love me more than these other disciples? Kind of a comparative kind of thing. But remember what they've just done. They've gone out and caught this huge thing of fish. Now, Peter's a fisherman for a living. You catch that many fish, what are you going to do? Man, it's time to write some contracts. Make some money. And I think Jesus looks around at all those fish and he says, Peter... You love me more than these? You willing to do what you need to do? Give up your job to do what you need to do? Peter said, yeah, you know I love you. Okay, Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times he's asked him, and, and, and Peter's getting a little frustrated, it seems like, towards the end. But every time, what does he say? Feed my sheep. What does Peter say? After seeing the sufferings of Christ and and partaking of the glory, I'm telling you as the elders, as the leaders of the church, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're saying, you know what? This first part of the message, I can just tune out. This is only for Brian, David, Pablo, and Wade because they're the elders, so I can just just tone out. No, you need to listen to. Even though he's talking to leadership here, we need to all listen. What does he say to the the leaders of what they need to do? He says, first off, you need to shepherd the flock of God among you. The idea here is protecting and leading and guiding. and And so you think, that seems like an easy job now. Who is he talking to, though? He's talking to elders of a church that are scattered because of persecution. He's not talking about people every time you meet together on Sunday morning and you have your chairs and your, your pro, pro, pro presenter, you know, shepherd the flock of God. He's saying these people who are, some of them need food because they've had to escape from their home. Some of them need clothing. Some of them need a place to live. Some of them don't understand why they're going through this. Shepherd this flock. Protect them. Oversee them. Help them out. He says, how do we do that? Well, first off, we're to truly... Love those in our care. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I've been in ministry a long time. 30, 33 years. It's not always easy to love those who are under your care. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's some of the folks I've ministered to over the years that made it hard to love. But think of Jesus and the example he set with those who, what, the night before Judas turned him into the the authorities, he washed Judas' feet. He showed him love. And so we truly love those under our care. We serve from a desire to serve, not because we have to. He says, don't just serve because you're under compulsion. Don't serve because you don't feel like there's nothing else to do. Peter's serving these people because he learned a lesson. He didn't have a real heart of service prior to Acts chapter 2. He had a heart of, it's all about me. But after the Holy Spirit came upon him, he had a heart that said, I want to love and serve the flock of God. So we serve, not because we have to. We, we also have a desire to please God. I'm not totally sure. And this is not, again, I don't mean this as an indictment on any body. I'm not naming any names or anything like that. But I'm not sure that everyone who is in ministry, especially in the popular culture of ministry today, is there with a desire to please God. I think many are there because it makes them look good. They get recognition. They get perks. And I just think we need to be careful. The goal is not, what can I get out of this as a leader? The goal is, do I desire to please God? Paul said, you know, if I, if I really wanted to please man, I could, I could say all kinds of things, get men to like me. But I, my goal is not to be pleasing to men and liked by men. My goal is to please the Lord. And so sometimes there are decisions that have to be made, things that have to be said that are not easy, but they're what pleases and honors the Lord. And then also not for personal gain or glory. Again, is it all about whether people like you, whether people think you're the greatest thing ever? You know, we had a couple of people last night, and it's, it's not a bad question, because it's just the culture we live in, but people say, well, who's the pastor here at this church? I said, well, we're elder-led. Well, explain that. Because it's not normal. Normally it's one person who has kind of the, the final say. The buck stops here. Whatever it is. And sometimes that can be a pain in the neck. Sometimes that makes you feel pretty good. You know, I mean, in Texas, because of some of the ways we were involved in different things in the community, there were people who respected me just because I was the pastor of the church. In the African-American community, especially with the people we worked with, I mean, you're the pastor. That There was something special about you. And I go, well, you don't know me very well. <laughs> but, you know, John Calvin says this, in exhorting pastors to their duty, he points out three vices, especially which are often to be found, namely sloth, desire for gain, 
and lust for power. You know, we joked the other day about, you know, if you want to be, uh, was it, we were talking with your brother, with Amadeo and his brother about, you know, sometimes in ministry there's this idea that, you know, I just kind of hang out all week. Friday I listen to another sermon and write down the notes and preach it on Sunday and I don't have to really work real hard. I mean, there are guys out there. I mean, first pastor I ever worked under as a youth pastor. I went by the church office one Friday afternoon, and he was listening to a message. Back then, it was on tape. It kind of shows my age. He was listening to a message, stop the tape, and write down some notes. Listen to the next part, stop the tape, write down some notes. And that's what he preached on Sunday morning. That's laziness. That's not honoring to the Lord. I'm not saying pastors shouldn't get paid well and be able to to have a nice living. But if your desire is to see how nice a living you can make, it's the wrong desire. But I think there's more in that last phrase than there is even the money issue. It's that desire for power. I'm in charge. I get to make the decisions. We're going to do what I say. That's in tr- that, that gets you in a lot of trouble. So he says, not doing it for that reason. He also says, remember you're only here by God's grace. Talked to a gentleman yesterday at a missions fair. And he, he made the statement. He said, we, we forget that we're all saved by grace. We get to a point where we think we deserve it. You know, I've gotten to, well, I've done pretty well over, I mean, I've served in ministry for 33 years. I deserve God to, to say how good I'm doing, right? But what did Billy Graham say a few weeks ago? I just want the Lord to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. And I hope, Billy Graham said, and I hope he says that. You go, if he's hoping he says it, man, what do I got, you know? So... We're only here by God's grace. Even in leadership, you're only there by God's grace. It's not because you're something special. It's just the giftedness and the the way that God has worked in your life. J. Oswald Sanders says, A shepherd's work cannot be done effectively without a shepherd's heart. So you say, okay, well, I I shut down during that part because he was only talking to the leadership. Well, now he's talking to all. What does he say to everyone? He says, Chapter 5, I mean, chapter 5, verse 5, the second part, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. And this word opposes, God opposes the proud, that means he is the enemy. Of the proud. It's not just he thinks, oh, that's, I really wish they weren't that way. He's the enemy of pride. We all need to realize I may have been doing this longer than you. That doesn't make me better, it makes me more responsible. And it means that when I blow it, I'm blowing it from a perspective that I should know better. You know, it, it was a lot easier when I worked with youth to deal with youth who make stupid choices because that's what youth are supposed to do. 
It's hard to deal with adults who make stupid choices. You go, you should know better, you know? But it's just the reality of life. And if I come with the attitude of you should know better, let me tell you how to do it. Let me be the one who has, that's the wrong attitude. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. How do we do that? Well, first off, humble yourselves. I've had people say, well, I asked the Lord to humble me. You don't want to do that. You know, take that step first. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. J.B. Phillips translates it this way. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon Him for you are His personal concern. Now let me make a statement here. And I have to admit that I was guilty of this myself in my younger days. Is taking this passage out of context to say, any struggles you have, you just need to pray about them. And people who have mental struggles and deal with depression and those kind of things, yes, you still need to pray about those things. You need to cast those anxieties on the Lord, but there's sometimes you might need somebody to come alongside to help you too. It's not just a let go and let God kind of thing. God gifts people to to help. But we need to understand and realize that as a body of Christ, as believers together, we need to be able to cast our cares and our anxieties upon the Lord because reality is, no matter how much you tell me or someone else, my shoulders are only so big. I can only handle so much. I can only help you so far. God's the one who can take all of your anxieties and help you because He cares more than I do for you and more than that counselor does for you. doesn't mean you shouldn't go see a counselor. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying we need to understand as a body of Christ that we need to realize that each person that comes and is part of this body, we are not better than them. We humble ourselves. And we share our anxieties. We don't want to do that. I don't want to let you know something I'm worried about or struggling with. Because then you might think less of me. But we're the body of Christ. Now that doesn't mean, you know, here in the South, what you do, you don't say hello when you come up to somebody. What do you say? How are you doing? Right? And 99.9% of the time, you're not asking that question because you want to know how that person's doing. Right? It's just a greeting. There are some people who are going to share every time you ask. You know, a friend of mine used to call it, for lack of a better way of saying it, verbally vomiting on you, you know. You ask a question, it's like, when you go, man, I really, I only had like two seconds. I just went, how are you doing? But the other extreme, which is just as bad, is I'm doing great. Praise God, hallelujah. When really the weight of the world's on my shoulders. We've got to be able to share together, not share everything that comes to our head. I know I get in trouble with that up here a lot of times. But, you know, sharing what's, what's on our heart. Having people that love us and are there as God's representative to help us through it. And here we are, this same thing we've said before. What does he say here? 
Be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. Remember, we talked about this a couple of times. Actually, I don't know why it keeps coming up in my passages, but, but uh, maybe I need to learn something. Um, you know, this idea of when you're at war, you don't stop to go to the bathroom. You're, you're focused. And he's saying, be focused and watchful, not, not because of just even the idea of what we talked about before, being holy, but realizing that there's an enemy out there that's ready to destroy you. That's what you're being watchful about. Now, this is not Frank Peretti books where every time your car doesn't crank, it's because there's a demon sitting there working on the wiring. But it is the idea that there's an enemy out to destroy. He's going to destroy in frontal attacks. He's going to destroy by tempting you. He's going to destroy by ruining your reputation so that his rep- Christ's reputation is ruined. He's going to destroy you by making you frustrated and ready to quit. He's going to do everything he can. You say, well, how does Peter know this? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, Peter, why don't you, you go over here and pray? And Peter goes over and what does he do? <clears throat> and Jesus comes and he says, you know what, Peter, I, I've prayed for you. Because the enemy wants to sift you. And I've prayed for you. Peter knew how the enemy worked. Peter had seen it firsthand. So he says, be sober-minded and watchful. He says, resist temptation. Resist the evil that comes. And we've talked about this before. You know, in, in Corinthians it says, there's no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, most of us take that passage and we abuse it and say, God will not give you more than you can handle. That's not what that passage is saying. What that passage is saying is, you can say, well, this is just too hard for me. You just don't understand. It's saying every single temptation you face is no different than every single temptation everybody else has ever faced. But with that temptation, God will provide the way of escape. But too often, because the temptation is a temptation and we like it,
We need God's help. But not only do we need it, we need to ask for God's help. Don't just assume. Don't get out there and do something stupid and hope that he bails you out. Ask for God's help. Cast all of your anxieties upon him. Because many times we try to get ourselves out of the situation. We try to work it out ourselves. We try to figure out the answer for ourselves. But we need to ask him. We need to ask him as individuals. We need to ask him as a body. We need to come together and pray. We need to seek God's face. We need to understand what he wants us to do. So we need God's help. We need to ask for his help. And we need to rely on God's help. It says he, he's the one who called you. God's the, the, he made the sovereign choice of bringing you into his relationship and bringing you to city church. So that together we rely on him to do the work. We need his help. We ask for his help. We rely. And you know what? You can trust God's help. Because I'm going to blow it from time to time. You can ask for my help anytime you want to ask. And sometimes I'm going to be able to help you. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm going to try and mess up. Sometimes you're going to ask me and I'm going to text back and go, yes. And the minute I had sinned, it totally gone out of my head. And a week later you say, well, I asked Wade for help and he never did help me. He said he was going to. It's because I texted you and it was gone. In the same way, sometimes I've asked your name 25 times. Because when you said it, it, it was gone the second you said it out of my head. Because I don't have the ability to, to do it all. And I forget. And I'm a doofus. But we can trust God's help. We can trust that He's going to give us. Now, be ready. Because His help doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. His help doesn't always mean... That it gets us out of situations. His help doesn't bail out the whole situation. Sometimes his help is the strength we need to get through it. You know, sometimes he heals. Sometimes he takes disease and it's gone. Sometimes he says, you know what? I'm going to let you go through everything you need to go through with this disease so that you honor and glorify me. Sometimes he says, you know what, I'm going to let you go through this for two, three years, and you're still going to die from it. But I'm going to give you the help you need to get through it, to give me the honor and glory in the midst of it. Because believe it or not, as a believer, death's not the worst thing for you. Dishonoring and disobeying And destroying God's reputation is a lot worse than dying. So as Peter wraps up this book, now we've read it, you know, we've gone through six, seven sessions of going through Peter. This was one letter that Peter wrote. As a matter of fact, you read the last few verses there. He didn't actually even physically write it. He dictated it to somebody who wrote it down for him. 
And he wrote it from, sounds like he wrote it from Babylon. He just really was writing from Rome. But he had to say Babylon so that he could kind of hide exactly what was going on. Because if he said Rome, then he was going to die earlier than maybe he needed to. But the point is, he's, he's written this letter to a group of people who are disenchanted, who are struggling, who are running around from one thing to the next, who are hungry, who have no place to live. And he calls us to understand and know what God's done for us, to live holy and, and glorious lives for him as a body, to humble ourselves and come to him to ask for help to do it. So that's what we're about on Sundays. That's what we're about in our city groups. That's what we're about when we have a movie night. That's what we're about when we go to the schools. That's what we're about when we call each other on the phone or text each other or whatever it is. We're in this together as a body to bring honor and glory to the Lord. To cast our cares and anxieties on Him and sometimes on each other. To the issue. We're here to do this together. That's what church is about. Not whether we have the best worship set and everybody's got everything perfect and all the sound's great and there's never any feedback and, and Wade doesn't do anything crazy and the batteries all work and pro presenter works like it's supposed to and everybody leaves entertained. That's not what it's about. If you want to be entertained, there's movie theaters all over the place. There's concerts all over the place. There's television. Internet, your phone, whatever you want to say to, to entertain. We are here as a body to bring honor and glory to the Lord by bringing as many people as we can to know Him and doing what He's called us to do. The same as what Peter challenged the people here in First Peter to do. And by the way, he didn't write it as First Peter. He just wrote it. He wrote two letters, so one of them became First Peter, one of them became Second Peter. Why are you here? That is a rhetorical question. Don't answer. <laughs> Why are you here? And I'm not saying if you're here to be entertained, don't ever come back. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that's not what it's about. We're here to live and honor the Lord Jesus Christ by being what he's called us to be as a body in West Columbia, in Columbia, in South Carolina, in the United States, and the world. That's what he's called us to do. Let's pray.